Good morning, everyone. Last day before spring break. I'm pretty excited about that. Yeah. Um, if you'll pray with me. Oh God, you summon the day to dawn. You teach the morning to waken the earth. Great is your name. Great is your love. For you, the valleys shall sing for joy. The trees of the fields shall clap their hands. Great is your name. Great is your love. For you, the monarchs of earth shall bow. The poor and persecuted shall shout for joy. Great is your name. Great is your love. Your love and mercy shall last forever, fresh as the morning, sure as the sunrise. Great is your name. Great is your love. Um, this morning, I have the privilege to introduce John Bell to everyone here. Um, he's a hymn writer, a broadcaster, an activist, a minister, and many, many more things. Um, and he's part of the Iona community, which is an ecumenical, ecumenical association of men and women who feel called to relationship with each other as a way to deepen their discipleship. Um, and this last Wednesday, I was part of a conversation about scripture with John and some other students. And it was really, really good. Um, and I really appreciate the way that John approaches scripture and community music and community worship. So um, please help me welcome him. He's going to preach this morning. Thanks. hear from John, let's sing. Um, from your hymnal, number 493, I heard the voice of Jesus say, please stand.
Friends, it's a great delight to be here this week and to be invited to speak in the chapel the other day and today. And I want to thank um, three women, Tracy and Tamara and Deb, for engaging me in the uh, college and for offering me hospitality, perhaps in excess sometimes. I came here to lose weight during Lent, and I've been fed with candies and cookies ever since my arrival. But that's a great Mennonite tradition which the rest of the world envies. Um, I'm not going to talk about ten things because, well, first of all, that would take too long. We might manage five or six. And secondly, in some way, when I preached or spoke the other day, I stole part of my thunder because I alluded to some of the things which I would say this morning. So I've had to find another five or six things about Jesus that no one hitherto has spoken about. This is, there's also a book which I wrote, this is not advertising, it's called Ten Things They Never Told Me About Jesus, and I don't think that uh, preaching should be the moment when one does an advertisement for a publication. So these things one would not necessarily find in the book. And behind this is my firm belief that we cannot understand discipleship, being like Jesus, unless we understand his life. It's no use just looking at the birth of Jesus and becoming misty-eyed about a baby allegedly born in snow, even though in Bethlehem this year it was 62 degrees Fahrenheit. Nor is it sufficient just to look at the Savior on the cross. That may be the ultimate sign of the sureness of our salvation. But to be like Jesus is not an intellectual thing primarily. It's a doing thing. It's a following in the way of one who for three years led an existence which blessed many and disturbed others. So what I'm looking at are things which are, with one exception, biblically verifiable. And the one exception is the first thing. Jesus probably had head lice. <laughs> now this seems bizarre beyond measure, except that the person who told me was a worthy academic. His name was Richard Rohrbaugh, one of two people, his colleague was Bruce Molina, who produced a book called A Sociological Commentary on the Synoptic Gospels, kind of light bedtime reading. <laughs> but what they did was to garner, as both theologians and anthropologists, information about the time of Christ, which had not hitherto been discovered. The fact, for example, that one in four women died at childbirth and one in three children died at the point of birth. The fact that the average diet in the Palestine of the first century was more than the minimum recommended at the moment in terms of calorie by the World Health Organization. But they also discovered that archaeologists had found in nearly every corpse which had been discovered dating back to the first century, evidence of head lice. And because our Lord was fully human, we can therefore imagine that from time to time he would scratch his head in concert with everyone around him, whether he took the lice to heaven as a matter for theologians to ponder <laughs> on their own. Perhaps they too have been redeemed but I want to suggest that Jesus knew how to talk like a woman, which is perhaps an unusual concept to offer. And we'll ground this in a moment in Luke's gospel when Jesus tells a story. 
Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one of them, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now that story comes after a previous one, which is better known about a shepherd who discovers a sheep is missing and he goes out and he finds the sheep and he brings it back, the lost sheep, and he has a feast. And here's the story of a woman who has lost a coin from her necklace and she cleans the whole house and she finds it. And I wonder sometimes, where did Jesus get that illustration? Because men, by and large, do not talk about female illustrations. Most male preachers talk about, in Britain, football, golf, someday I met at the bar, how my stocks and shares are doing. Very seldom would they use a female illustration. And for me, the possibility is that because he's so gregarious, as I mentioned the other day, He's sitting at a table, and there are people there who just happen to have come in. And a woman sits next to him and says, Jesus, you'll never know what happened last week. I'll tell you. I was cleaning my house, and I was down on my hands and knees. And when I got back up, you see this necklace? It was my mother's. And these coins in it have been collected from all over the Middle East. And I discovered one is missing. So I got back down on my knees, and I left every carpet, and I go under the mattresses, and under the beds, and if and then I find it, and I went next door, and I called in Mrs. Gibson. I said, Sadie, you come in here and bring Molly from next door. I'm going to offer, open a bottle of sherry, and we're having a party. Because I thought, Listen, where else would he get it? This is not a male illustration. And the curious thing is that then he has the gauchness to suggest that God is like that. You know, we're quite happy thinking of God as the shepherd, but less happy thinking of God as the woman who goes on her knees to find that which is lost. But there's another moment which I discovered when I, when I was in um, the Philippines. Jesus, when he sees the city of Jerusalem prior to his death, weeps over it and says, how I long to gather you, like a, gather you and your children under my wings like a hen gathers her chickens. In the Philippines, I was working in this college where the staff premises were all yeah, nearly or nearly all in bamboo huts, which were about oh, 15 feet above the ground on stilts. The reason being a river was nearby, and during the rainy season, the river was in spades, the water came up, and so to keep the staff premises dry, they were up in stilts. This was a dry season. The river was very low. And under the huts and between them hung what looked like fishermen's nets, they were there to catch leaves falling from the trees to prevent the leaves blocking the culverts which would drain the water away during the rainy season. Well, I was brought up for part of my life in the country, so I'm used to the cockerel or the rooster waking the dawn. I did not think it would happen at four o'clock in, in Manila, nor did I expect one morning to be wakened much earlier, half past two, when two roosters had got into some infernal fight below someone's hut and were stuck in these nets. 
The noise was appalling. Some kind child of God got out of her and her, her or his bed, separated the animals, and kicked them in opposite directions. And then I realized Jesus could never have said, how I long to gather my children like a rooster. <laughs> the male image does not work. And therefore, he uses the female image because there is that in him and there is that in God. Another thing which I discovered in another conversation, um, this was with uh, young people, uh, 12th grades, I think that's what you call them, in Montreat, which is in um, North Carolina. And I had asked this group of uh, about 60 or 70 uh, 12th grade pupils if they could talk about the questions they would like to ask Jesus. Well, this was a year of the Da Vinci Code, and there were many questions about his intimate relationships with Mary Magdalene and others. And one boy asked, uh, I'd like to ask Jesus what he thought about the eschatological issue. I'm sure that child's going to have a PhD before he's 19. <laughs> but one, one girl asked this question, I would like to ask Jesus, what did it feel like when you sent out five loaves and two fishes and got back 12 baskets of scraps? I thought, that's a stunning question, because that's the story. In John's Gospel, a boy offers Jesus his lunch, five loaves, two small fishes. Jesus breaks it, shares it, and back come 12 baskets of scraps. So I decided that I would do a kind of meditation with this group, where I would just let people enter the story and, and feel for what happened. And I had no idea how this was going to end. So I said, we begin with, um, let's begin with closing our eyes and imagining we're in a village and we hear that Jesus is coming. Uh, do we go on our own? Do we take a friend? Do we take our family? So I walk through this and we ask questions until they get to the place where he's going to speak. Where do they sit? Near the front or the back with friends on their own? Uh, what do they remember of what he's saying? What do they think when a boy comes forward with loaves and fishes, has lunch, giving them to Jesus? Um, what do they do when the baskets come round? How long are they there? Do they feel tired when it's over? What's the one thing they remember of the, day, of the day? When do they get back home? What do they tell their friends? Now, this takes 20 minutes, easily. And they have their eyes closed and individually are imagining these things. And then eyes are opened, and I say, okay, I want to ask some questions which I asked in the meditation. And I come to the, the question, what do you do when the baskets come round? And without any consultation with each other, there's a chorus of voices which say, put something in. And I says to this girl in the front row, I said, what did you put in? She says, eh, two candy bars and three sandwiches. I said, why did you have them? She said, well, I went with my five children, and I certainly wasn't going to go for an afternoon with five children without something to give them to eat. I said, but where did you have them? She said, that's for me to know and you to guess. <laughs> and suddenly you discover at that point that this story is not about starving people. This is not a story about people who have not had lunch or who have been emaciated for days. It's not that story at all. In John's gospel, it's about people who've gone out for an afternoon and who are steeped in selfishness. And the great miracle is when Jesus takes the naivety of a boy who believes that what he has 
on his own should be shared with many. And by demonstrating what it's about, when the food goes out, other people begin to join in the expectation of Christ and they lose their selfishness. This is the miracle for the 21st century because we all have more than five loaves and two fishes. And the world is not a crowd who are going out for the afternoon. A third of the world starves. And in Britain, as in North America, we waste a third of the food which we eat. That's perhaps why people don't want to believe the miracles of Jesus. Not because they are beyond our understanding, but because they demand of us something if we take them seriously. I want to suggest also that Jesus had a sense of humor. Now, this is a bit hard to get into because humor is a gloriously uh, not vague, a, a gloriously precise thing. What, what makes people laugh in one culture make, doesn't work in another. If I say there were two American Marines on shore leave and they were standing uh, on the front of um, a harbor looking out to sea and their legs were up on the railings. And the one Marine says to the second Marine, oh, I wish I were abroad. And the second one says, no, I like you the way you are. <laughs> you see, that works in the States, but say that in, 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 in Scotland and people have no conception of what this is at all. <laughs> they think he's asking to be fatter abroad. <laughs> so humor does not always translate. And we have to... We have to be aware of that subtlety and also of cultural differences, but even given that, we might be able to perceive some humor in Jesus. So there's a second passage we might hear. When he began the reckoning, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him, and as he could not pay, his Lord ordered him to be sold together with his wife and his children and all of his possessions and payment to be made. So the slave fell down at his feet before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the Lord of that slave released him and forgave him of the debt. Well, that was lovely, but it's not the right passage. So I'll tell the passage myself. <laughs> One of the passages is, a, is about a story he tells about how a man comes in the middle of the night to a friend's house and says, a neighbor, uh, a neighbor knocks at the door and says, I'm, I'm, um, I've got someone who's just arrived and don't have any food, you know, so can you give me some? And the man in the house who's in bed with his family gets up, even though it's the middle of the night, and answers the door. Nothing there funny for us. But we live in houses where we have separate rooms. We live in houses with an with a intercom system. We live in houses where a bell might be rung. Palestinian houses are a, were then, some of them, like a house I was in in El Salvador three years ago, a tin shack with no cupboard space, uh, with a roof which was full of holes, the boy called uh, Yus, who lived there, sometimes with his inebriate mother, uh, was in a place where, where the, his clothes were strung out on, on string, uh, trying to avoid the drips from the ceiling. There was one bed which he and his mother would share. 
there were at night animals on the bare earth floor, a dog, uh, a duck, two ducks, and two goslings. And the evening before I arrived to meet him, there was on the floor uh, a chicken which had hatched, sorry, a hen which had hatched two chickens just that night. So, in Palestine, some of the houses, the family sleeps in one bed. So, you have the father in at the wall, and you may have four or five children, and the mother at the edge, because if she has to breastfeed the baby, it's easier to swing her legs round and do that than if she were in at the wall. And on the ground, on the floor, on the earth, are the domestic animals. Chickens, certainly, perhaps a dog, maybe a goat has been brought in if it's bad weather or if there are thieves about. And there's no light, it's, it's midnight, and the doors are shut, and the lights uh, are off, and it's total darkness, and somebody comes to the door. And the wife wakens the husband and says, there's somebody at the door. So he has to answer the door, which means he has to walk gingerly over these four sleeping children whom he cannot see, and then over his wife, avoiding her very carefully. And then once he steps on the floor, well, goodness knows where his feet might meet before he gets to the door. And people who realize that it could be a scene of pandemonium begin to smile. And just as they begin to smile and laugh, because they know the kind of panic and uproar which could set in if he tramps on the cat. Jesus says, and God will go to all that trouble if you knock on God's door. Or another occasion when he and Peter are going up to Capernaum and the temple tax has to be paid, and Peter says to Jesus, Jesus, we're going up to Capernaum. Jesus says, that's the direction we're going in, Peter. And when we get there, we'll have to pay tax. Jesus says, that's right. And Peter says, and we don't have any money. And Jesus says, that's right. So you just take a line and throw it in the lake, and you'll catch a fish with a silver coin in its mouth. And Peter is in disbelief. And some people would say, well, that's a miracle story. Not at all, for two reasons. First of all, Jesus never uses his own miraculous power for personal aggrandizement. Never, ever, ever. And secondly, all the miracle stories have evidence of change. Jesus says, get up and walk. The man gets up and walk. Jesus says to the storm, be still. The waves stop rocking. But there's no word in Matthew's gospel which says, so Peter took the line and threw it in the lake, and behold, he caught a fish, and when he opened its mouth, there was a big silver coin. So, what is this story about? Is it not possible that our Lord could use the same kind of language and figures of speech as we use ourselves? And here's Peter, who has the great ability to say the wrong thing at the right time and the right thing at the wrong time, and who is a bit dopey. No harm to him. He, he was redeemed. But, you know, he was a bit dopey sometimes. And he expects Jesus to do everything. And Jesus says, look, Peter, I'm a carpenter by trade. There is no wood here. What are you by trade? Peter says, a fisherman. So to get this money, if you use your skill and you put a line into that lake, you'll bring out a fish with a silver coin in its mouth. And Peter says, I don't get it. And Jesus says, how much will you get at the market for a five-pound salmon? Peter says, oh, I didn't think Jesus. <laughs> and Jesus says, you never do. 
And we could find other moments when similar words are said by him which show that within him there's lovely, tender humanity. I want to say one other thing, and that is that he, what's the time, by the way? I can't see this clock. I've got 10 minutes. All right, well, that's fine. Uh, he, has, he has no technique. Mark's gospel is the one which has the most miracles. And when we look at the miracle stories of Jesus, there is nothing which is consistent in them. You know, a deaf man has Jesus um, touch his ears and he hears. A dumb man has spittle put on his tongue and he begins to speak. A blind man has spittle rubbed in mud and then put in his eyes and he begins to see. Someone is healed by command, take up your bed and walk. That's quite a funny story in its own way. I mean, here's a boy who has been 38 years at the side of the pool, crippled, and Jesus comes up to him and he says, do you want to get better? As if he'd been lying there enjoying a suntan for the past 38 years. And the man doesn't answer, doesn't answer. But Jesus says, take up your bed and walk. So the man takes up his bed and walks. And he's got his bed in his head because Jesus has said that. And he's very happy and he's going through the town. Here we go, here we go, here we go. Very happy. And along come the Pharisees, the religious thought police, and they say, hey, you, with the bed on your head. The voice says, me? It's against the law to carry your bed on your head on the Sabbath. The man has no conception what day it is at all. Oh, he says, hey, it's not my fault. The person who cured me, he told me to carry my bed on my head. The Pharisee, name the person who told you to carry your bed on your head. He said, no, I don't know. Um, he didn't leave his calling card. <laughs> Which is true. Jesus never told the man who he was. He just disappeared in the crowd. Different kind of healing. Um, he says to a centurion who's worried about his servant, once you go home, um, your servant will be cured. He never sees this person. Uh, somebody is lowered down from a roof who's paralyzed, and when he lies in front of Jesus, Jesus looks not at his faith, but at the faith of his friends and cures the man. On another occasion, a woman comes up behind him and touches the hem, the edge of his cloak, and he allows her to be healed. There is, it seems, no consistency in the way in which he cures people. And that's because, essentially, in his ministry, everybody is treated as an individual. If it was a kind of one-way-fixes-all kind of mentality, which sometimes happens in our hospitals, then the individual is not respected. Here's somebody who doesn't just need to be restored to health. Here's somebody who needs to be sent back into his community to be accepted fully, the man who's a demoniac at the side of the road, and Jesus cures him of whatever is possessing him, whether that's schizophrenia or something much more malevolent, he cures him. And the man wants to follow Jesus and says, no, no, son, don't, don't, don't. I want you to go back to your village. I want people to see that you are cured. I want you to be accepted by those who rejected you. Here's a woman who's in the back of the synagogue. He brings her forward. She's been crippled for a while. And Jesus 
doesn't just cure her and enable her to stand up straight. He says to the congregation, who will have thought that she's mad, because sometimes physical deformity was seen as a sign of mental or spiritual illness. And these people will have called her names and perhaps told their children to keep back from that woman who sits at the back. And he brings her forward and he says, this woman, this woman is a daughter of Abraham. There is no more beautiful name which a Jewish woman can have. This woman was meant to be kissed. This woman was meant to dance. This woman was meant to sing. This woman was meant to be happy. And you, the community who have rejected her, now to have, I now have to accept her and affirm her. The other day, when um, we were doing a biblical reflection, we looked at that story of Jesus with Jairus' daughter. And here you have, you have three tender moments in that story. When the girl who's presumed to be dead suddenly wakens up and finds four strange men in her bedroom because Jesus has come with Peter, James, and John. And what's he doing? He has taken her hand. He tells her parents that they shouldn't tell anyone else. And then he says, give her something to eat. Incredible sensitivity. He takes her hand. You see, she may, may, may have gone into a coma on the onset of menstruation as some girls do who live in societies where the loss of blood is seen as something which is highly suspect. And if she didn't know that her periods were going to start and she discovers between her legs that blood is running, then as would be the testimony of an old doctor friend of mine who worked in Kenya, she may go into a coma. And he touches her to let her know that she's touchable. That all these old laws about how men shouldn't touch women who are bleeding, that these have gone. She is touchable. And he says to her parents, give her something to eat because she's only 12 years of age. And girls, like boys, like things to eat. And when she eats, that will let them see she's returned back to normal. And he says, don't, don't tell anybody because this girl is not meant to be a celebrity age 12, as happens in our cultures where if something miraculous happens to a child, they are feted in the newspapers, and forever people will say, oh, I remember the day you were in the newspapers when you were 10, and they're never allowed to grow up from that time. No, no, there's no publicity. This great affection for people, tenderness, so that everyone is treated in a different way. But I realized why he let people touch him and he touched people when I was in South Africa four years ago. I went with the BBC to make a film about Good Friday, which was to be screened on BBC television on Good Friday. A film about how the crucifixion, the passion of Jesus was seen through the eyes of suffering people. And when we got to a place called Temba, from which came the song which we sang the other day, God Welcomes All, and then the Amen at the end. We discovered that in this encampment of the Sunrise Hospice, which was for people with HIV AIDS, there was a kind of 
melee uh, party, so it seemed. People singing, ah, 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 men, ah, and men are down on the ground kicking their legs in the air. Women are standing around swaying. Everybody's singing in harmony. And after that was all over and people had gone to the different clinics, I spoke to a woman called Mpo, who had been the founder of this. I said to her, Mpo, uh, did you do this for the cameras? Because they were keen to film this and the sound man was keen to get it on tape. She said, what? I said, well, when we arrived, there was all the singing and dancing. No, no, she said, every day we sing and dance and pray for 20 minutes. It's very important for us. I said, yeah, but I couldn't see who were the patients and who were the nurses and who were the therapists and doctors. No, she said, you wouldn't. Because in this place, we have discovered that for the healthy to be whole, they have to be touched by those who are sick. And when she said it, it was as if a curtain came apart in my mind, and I saw something about Jesus I had never recognized. He let people touch him, because when they did, they knew that he would take on their pain, and also that when they touched him, they affirmed his complete humanity. Here was not a God who was inaccessible. Here was a God who was tangible, one who would let those who are unworthy touch him so that they knew that they too could be blessed. Let's respond with singing. Number 27 and sing the journey, God of the Bible. We will sing verses 1, 2, 3, and 5. Please stand.
the blessing of sunlight be on you, enveloping soft and warm. May the blessing of rest follow you, weary, quiet, and comfortable. And may the blessing of God surround you, confusing, persistent, and loving. In the strong name of Jesus, amen. <laughs>